It is hard to understand how Jesus would care so much for us, isn't it? Incredible. John chapter 9 this morning. John chapter number 9. I have this occur often when dealing with music. I listen to music. I'm surrounded with music. I look at music. I dream about music. Uh, My biggest nightmares are about music. In the fact that I'm supposed to do something and I'm not prepared for it. That's the only nightmare I have. I don't have these nightmares where you're falling off a cliff or you're running and it's too slow. That doesn't happen to me. I'm just standing up here and I'm supposed to be doing something with music and I'm not ready. And I wake up cold sweats and it's... I'd rather fall off a cliff. But um, because I am involved in music so much, oftentimes I'll bring a song. This happened just a month ago. I'll bring a song out to a group, and I'm like, all right, we know this song. We're going to throw this thing together. It's not a problem. I know this song really well. And it's with people that really know music, too. It's not just, you know, 12-year-olds. And I'm like, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. And I bring up this song, and everybody's looking at me like, I've never heard this song in my entire life. And I'm like, you don't know this? I know we sing this. No, we've never... So, that being said, this chapter to me is that. I love this chapter so much that when I started looking this direction uh, on Thursday, I, I thought, man, I, I, don't, I think I preached this really recently. And so, I got to look back and it was been over 10 years and it obviously was a completely different context. But So, I know time's flying. It's not flying that fast. Uh, but I love this chapter. It's, it's so full of some amazing truths. And so we're going to look at a few of those this morning. If you would stand in honor of the word of God, John chapter number 9. We'll start at the very end of the chapter, verse 35. And then we will go through the entire chapter in its, uh, through the message uh, quickly. And uh, try to draw a couple similarities between this chapter and the case of, the man, of man's soul. Verse number 35, John chapter 9, the Bible says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I am coming to this world that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore, your sin remaineth. The text verse, if we could this morning, is found in that final verse of the chapter that seemingly makes no sense on the outset. But when you take the chapter in its entirety and Jesus Christ's ministry and his purpose in his ministry, it becomes quite clear at the end. But I like the phrase there, if ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, we see. And I would like to bring a message this morning quickly, if we could, on this topic. How clearly do you really see? How clearly do you really see? Let's pray. I'm going to ask my dad if you pray for us this morning, please. Lord, we're glad to be here. 
And then you may be seated. Rarely in the Gospels do we have an entire chapter that's given to the healing of a single individual. Often you'll find a chapter in the first few verses are the healing of this person, and then he journeys to this place and speaks over here and heals that person. But this chapter, from the beginning to the end, is the healing of this blind man and then the events that transpire and then it culminates in his salvation there at the end of the chapter. I believe that the time taken to look into this event could be possibly that it most resembles the events surrounding the opening of a person spiritualized to the truth of the gospel. And sometimes, and as we'll see in this, the people that reject the gospel that also have as much advantage as the person that receives it. You see, there's several groups of people that are found in this chapter. You have first the disciples, they're questioning Christ. And then you have the blind man. And then you have the Jews. And then you have the Pharisees. And then you even have his parents. And each of them believed or didn't believe based off of certain preconceived ideas about this miracle. It's interesting to note before we get into the passage that the blind man's name is never mentioned. In fact, even after he is healed, he's still called the blind man. And it's even more interesting to understand that when we get done with the chapter, the only person in this chapter, aside from Christ, that actually sees clearly is the blind man. A bit ironic. If we could take a moment, we'll go through this chapter and kind of get a context to what we're talking about. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The first thing we see in verses 1 through 5 is we see the presentation of the man that was born blind. And then we see the misconceptions in the people's minds about why he was blind. Very Eastern in their mentality that what happens in this life was because of a previous life. Well, you were born blind because your parents are wicked people. Uh, No, he wasn't. And God clarifies that and said, no, he was born blind, that the works of Christ might be made manifest. Which gives us a, a glimpse into the idea that God's ways are far higher than ours. Because if we look at that from the human perspective, that looks cruel. And they look at that and say, well, wait a minute. You you mean God made this man blind just so that he could have a moment of glory? Well, let me ask you this. Who actually sent blindness into the world? A lot of credit is placed at the feet of Jesus for things he did not do. He did not produce sin. He did not bring sin, pain, death, disease, and heartache into this world. Now, he allows it in his infinite wisdom, but he is not the creator of it. It's the devil, but God's the one that gets blamed for it. So we'll just let that be. That's another sermon for a different time. But be careful that we're not buying into this horribly worldly philosophy that all pain and heartache and all that originated from God. No, it did not. It originated from the devil. But God in his infinite wisdom at times will use it for his honor and glory. Be careful we give the devil his due in this too. And then verses 6 and 7, obviously we see the miracle performed on the man born blind. It's amazing you have a chapter of 41 verses, only two verses to heal him. And then all the rest of it to see what was going to take place in the people's minds and hearts and the decisions that they were going to make in regards to that miracle. Verses 8 through 12, we see the miracle had to be proved to his community. His neighbors come and say, hey, 
Who healed you? What's going on here? We need to know what happened. And, and where is he at? And blind man basically, I have no idea where he's at. Yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure what's going on. And then in verse number 13, these Jews bring him to the Pharisees. And, um, and it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay. So we don't know if it's actually on the Sabbath day still or if this was a day or two later. We don't know. Uh, most likely because of the uh, events that took place, it was probably a day or two later. Uh, uh, but that's happening in verses 8 through 12. Then verses 13 through 18, uh, um, the Pharisees questioned the person of the miracle. Look at verse 15. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay upon mine eyes, and I washed, and do see. Therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? There was a division among them. And then in verses 19 through 23, the parents of the blind man are questioned. And they're questioned as saying, Hey, who did this? And uh, they were very fearful of the Pharisees and gave a very, if I could say, cowardly response. I'm a parent, all right? And uh, I I can't even imagine if I had a son that had been born blind. And he was now, we don't know how old, but it says by the indication of Scripture, he was somewhere around at least 20s. He was an adult on some level. And uh, uh, I had a child that was born blind, and miraculously he saw. In my own mind, I I want to say that I would be ecstatic, and I would be uh, a bit out of control. Probably my wife would be trying to make her distance from me um, because of the craziness that was ensuing. And I guarantee you, I would be finding the person that did this. Then I would be doing anything and everything with my power to show gratitude and repay or whatever I could do. But that's not the case here at all, which shows an incredible amount of fear that religion can place in the hearts and minds of people. Fear so much that you can't even rejoice with your son because he sees for the first time in his life. It's incredible. Then verses 24 through 34, we see the profession of the blind man that the miracle was of God. He goes from the teen verses when he's talking to his neighbors going, I have no idea who he is. Verses 13 through 18, he comes before the Pharisees and they're saying, hey, he can't be of God because of this, that, and the other. And the parents are saying, hey, we have no idea. Go ask him. And somewhere in between all of that, the blind man realizes, these guys have no idea what they're talking about. And I want to read this because this is very awesome. Because I love it when the people that are the proud people get put in their place by somebody that's not supposed to know nothing. And that's basically what takes place. Verse 24, then again, called they the man that was blind. I love that. And said unto him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. Okay. Let that register for a minute. Then we have the blind man speaking. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind in what? Wonderful passage. Then said they, the Pharisees to him again, what did he to thee? How opened he thine eyes? Now, we didn't read it, or we did kind of read it, but remember, he already told him. Remember that? He said, hey, he spit on the ground, and he made clay, and he put it in my eyes. And that's how he healed me. So they asked him again. Verse 27, he answered them, I have told you already. <laughs> He's losing his patience 
as all of us would be at this point. His parents aren't happy about it. The neighbors are confused. The Jews are upset. The Pharisees are out of their minds. And this poor guy is just going, hey, this is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Why isn't anybody happy with me? Nobody's happy with him about this. He's the only one. He's looking for somebody that will dance in the street with him, and they won't. I mean, you, you have the lame man who's walking and leaping and praising God, and this guy, he can't do that because everybody's like, hey, this isn't a God. This is a demon thing. You know, cast it out, cast it out. He says, I've told you already. You did not hear. That was not a question. <laughs> that was a statement. And you did not hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? And then he kind of just throws a little bit of sarcasm at him. Will you also be his disciples? All right, so this can be taken two ways. Number one, he knew his the Jesus' disciples were very dense, and he's thrown the disciples under the bunch. That's possible. Because he said, are ye his disciples also? I don't know that that's the case. But that's possible. But he's, giving, he's, he's slamming the Pharisees saying, hey, do you really want to know? Because if you really want to know, you're going to follow him. And that, they, didn't, they didn't appreciate that. So then they reviled him and said, thou art his disciple. He didn't even know Jesus a week ago. He's a follower of him, apparently. But we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we know not from whence he is. I mean, they, listen, they're more certain about something they've read in a manuscript over 2,000 years old than they are about a person that's living and breathing and doing miracles in their city. The man answered, verse 30, the blind man said unto them, Why herein is a marvelous thing? I'm not talking about his healing. Listen, watch what he says. That ye know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. He's mocking them. He's saying, hey, this is a marvelous thing. This guy opened my eyes. You don't even know who he is. Because you obviously know everything. That's what he's saying. You guys are a bunch of know-it-alls, and you don't even know who this guy is? Shame on you. How come you don't know him? You say you follow God, but you don't know who he is. This is that Matthew chapter 7. Many, many will say to me in that day, did we not cast out devils? And did we not do this? And I will look at them and say, hey, I never knew you. This is the Pharisees. They know every law there is to know, and they've made up plenty on the side. But they have no idea who Jesus is, and he's standing there in their city doing amazing things. And they're saying, hey, we know all about him, but we don't know him. And the unfortunate thing is a lot of people know a lot about God and his word, but they know nothing about the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying in here. A lot of wisdom coming out of this dumb blind man that didn't know so much. It's amazing how opening of eyes is an opening of understanding. He says, where is a marvelous thing? You know not from whence he is, and yet he hath opened mine eyes. Now we know. This is what this blind man is still talking. We know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God, doeth his will. Him he heareth. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. He's saying, hey, you guys know, you have read, we have talked about this. You know that if a man is blind and now can see, there's only one person that can do that, and it's God. How can you not see what is so clearly laid out right in front of you? They appreciated that, verse 34. They answered and said to him, Thou art altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? And they cast him out. Hey, I, I'll be the first one to admit, truth from an inferior source is the hardest truth to handle. This is why you have to be careful you don't look down on people based off of their stature, their age, 
because truth is still truth. But this, is, this is a classic example of saying, hey, dude, we already declared at the beginning of this chapter, you are blind because your parents are wicked. So you were born in sin. Obviously, we weren't. So you have nothing to bring to the table here, dude. So out of the synagogue you go. And what's so amazing is the very next verse where we started this morning, verse number 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And he went and found him. Anybody ever been there? You feel like you've been cast out? Maybe it wasn't literally, maybe you didn't literally get kicked out of church. But in your mind, you felt like everything and everyone that cared and mattered, and when it came to eternity, you felt like a castaway. And then one day, somebody showed up. Somebody that owed you nothing, that you didn't even know how much he'd already done for you in the past. And after you get saved, you look back and go, oh my goodness, that was God. Oh my goodness, that was God. Oh my goodness, he saved me here. I should have died. Oh my goodness, that was God. And you look back and see all that he's already done. So he obviously owes you nothing at all. But one day he showed up on your front door when nobody else understood the need of your heart. And he said, hey, I can help. That's what he did with the blind man here. You see, the focus of the community was direction to the healer. The focus of the Pharisee was to discredit the healer. The focus of the parents was to disregard the healer. The focus of Jesus was to make a difference in the life of a single blind man. You know, the remarkable part about the story, as I mentioned already, the only one to see clearly was the blind man because the Jews were blinded by unbelief. His parents were blinded by fear. And the Pharisees were blinded by man's traditions. And the worst of all, pride. There's several characteristics I like to do real quickly. If you know anything about uh, uh, when I'm up here, I have three points, always. I don't trust myself to have four. It's nothing to do with right, it's just I don't trust myself. So, three quick things that we see characteristic of the life of the blind man that's necessary for spiritual sight. Number one, he owned his condition. He owned his condition. You see, in verse number one, the Bible says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And then verse eight, we get why this blind man was in the way. The neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and what? Begged. You see, this man was not only blind, but he took up his proper position. You say, What do you mean, what is proper position? He was a beggar. Now, we have beggars today, but they're not blind. There's no massive physical impairment that's keeping them from working. And back in these days, the only people that were allowed to beg were people that were physically incapable of working. Not mentally. Not because they've made a series of horrible decisions and now they're at wit's end. No, they're the only people that beg were blind people, lame people, and people that had physical impairments that... They could not work. And so working for them was begging because the other option was to stay at home. Now, here's an interesting thought. If the man hadn't been doing what he knew he was supposed to be doing, he wouldn't have been out there begging when Jesus passed by. You know, I noticed this the other day. I was reading, uh, we were talking about the life of Christ uh, in, in the class 
You know, every one of the disciples where God specifically calls them, maybe with the exception of Nathaniel, he called them at work. Now, some of them got brought by a brother. I understand that. We don't know that he was working or not. All right, but James and John were mending nets, right? All right, Andrew was working, and you say he wasn't working. Yeah, he was. He was one of John's, John the Baptist's disciples. You call that not work? Goodness gracious. Oh, my stars. I can't imagine. John the Baptist had it rough. Can you imagine how rough his disciples had it? All right. So Andrew and another, we don't get the exact name, but we believe it was John, were John the Baptist's disciples, and they were called while at work being disciples, right? And, and so God is in the business for free here of calling people while they are busy doing what they're supposed to be doing, which entails work. That was for free. You know, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 16, 3, there's the, the quick story that we get about the, the, the householder that had a, a wasteful steward and he had wasted his stuff and he said, hey, you're fired. And, and the steward, and he's trying to figure out what to do, he, he says this. He says, what shall I do? This is Luke 16, 3. What shall I do? My Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. And this is, shows you the mindset of the people in the Bible times. I cannot dig. All right, you say, all right, I'm not good with my hands. All right. And then he goes on to say, to beg, I am ashamed. And here's my point. To be a beggar was shameful. It was the most looked down of all positions in Israel. My point is this. This blind man was begging and he was where he was supposed to be and doing what he was supposed to be, which was the lowest of all things. See, by begging, there was two things you were doing. Number one, you were acknowledging that you were incapable of meeting your own needs. Because he was blind, he could not even meet the simplest needs in order to live. He could not work. His begging was the outward humbling and acknowledging of his complete and total powerlessness to help himself. Go to Romans chapter number 3. The mindset that a person must come to in order for there to be salvation is this mindset. That you are the lowest of all people. That you can do nothing to meet your own needs. Romans chapter 3, we know these verses, verses 19 and 20. The Bible tells us this. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, here it is, there shall what? No flesh. Be justified in his sight. Go to Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. The Bible tells us this. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him, excuse me, that worketh is reward not reckoned of grace, but what? Of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You know what, in essence, a person is saying when they're looking at something they can perform to gain access into heaven? They are literally claiming that one day God's going to let me in because he is indebted to me. Now, we look at that statement and go, oh, my goodness, I don't believe God's indebted to me. But if you think that you are getting into heaven for any other reason than through the blood of Jesus Christ, then you are holding God ransom by your lifestyle. And when we look honestly at our lifestyle and what we have to offer, wow, how horrible God must be to be indebted to us. 
By begging, you are not only acknowledging you're incapable of meeting your own needs, but you're acquiescing to the grace of another. He was allowing that his very existence was in the hands of another person. His life literally was dependent on somebody else. Ephesians chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 1. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past... You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Boy, what a description of the mind and heart of all of us. Great verse number five. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. You know why we have to come to Christ as a beggar? Because you're incapable of meeting your own needs spiritually. And you have to allow the fact that another must meet the needs in order for you to survive. So not only did we see that he owned his condition, but he longed for a cure. Now, this is a silly thing. We think, well, why wouldn't a blind person want to be cured? And in the physical sense, it makes perfect sense. This would be an obvious conclusion But we also know this, that Christ heals no one who doesn't desire to be healed. The Pharisees were upset at him in Mark chapter number 2 because he ate with publicans and sinners. And his response was simply this. And I'm going to slaughter it, so I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to look at it really quickly. In Mark chapter 2, I'll read just one quick verse. Verse number 17. His answer to them is this. They that are whole have no need of the physician But they that are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but what? Sinners to repentance. It is one one thing to understand the need for healing. It is another entirely to, to be so sick that it produces desperation. I, I, I don't know if I've, if I've ever been in a hospital, I don't remember, as far as me as a patient. The Lord's been very gracious. But, but I have, within the last couple of years, had some tooth problems. And, and I, I believe that I have a fairly high pain tolerance. I mean, I do have five kids. But I almost said I've been married 19 years, but I told I wouldn't throw her under the bus today. Not going to go down that road because they were making fun of me about that yesterday. But I do believe I have a pretty high pain tolerance. And a couple months ago, I, I had a, a crown that was getting adjusted, whatever. It was a mess. Anyways. And, and, and one of the nights, it's, it was one of those nights where the, the doctor was not in or whatever. I don't, I don't know, but it was like one or two in the morning. And it was pain like I have never felt in my life. I, I took whatever I could. If I thought that there was something stronger in the house, I would have taken it. But since we basically are witch doctors in our house and we don't, <laughs> we don't believe in Western medicine, apparently. You know, the strongest thing I found was like a 50 milligram ibuprofen. But 
the pain was getting to be, I couldn't handle it. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and it was excruciating. And I'm trying to figure out what to do. You know what I didn't do? I didn't just sit there and go, okay, I guess I'm just going to have to deal with this pain. Nuh-uh. I would, I'd passed that point. I was called, it's desperation. You know, I was so desperate. I went in. I'm going to say, this is desperation on another level. It's true. I went in and woke up my wife. And I said, you have got to find something to help this pain. I don't care what it is. I don't care if you start writing on the ground and lighting candles. I don't, I don't care. I, which was really easy. I mean, she lifted up a blanket. The writing was still there. I, I, didn't, I had no idea. And uh, I, I, my point is this, you know, she goes to the medicine camp, found some homeopathics, and literally, God, God be the glory. Within 15, 20 minutes, my pain went from on a scale of 1 to 10, about 120, to about a 5. Like that, and next thing I know, because it's middle of the night, I was asleep. You know, my point is simply this. I, I didn't ask for help when it hurt. I didn't even ask for help when it hurt bad. I asked for help when I felt like I was going to lose my mind. And that the pain was so intense, I didn't feel like I could live another 5 minutes with it being that bad. Here's the reality. I think oftentimes a person is spiritually blinded, but they feel like it's not really blindness. It's just a slight nearsightedness. And they attempt to put in the contacts of church membership and the glasses of good works and the corrective lenses of AA and self-help books and personal reformation. And the only thing they actually can do is the reality that they're completely blinded to the true condition of their heart. You know why blind people spiritually don't ask for help? They don't realize they are blind. It's one thing for us to associate with physical handicaps but the spiritual is so much greater and with such greater consequences. And honestly, at the end of the day, it's that part of us that hurts the most in our quiet times when it's not right. But then all of a sudden things change and we're like, oh, it's really not that bad. There was no disillusionment in this man's mind. He knew he was blind. My question is, how clearly do you see today? Now, here's the sad part. Here's the super sad part is people have been enlightened by the gospel and been given the truth of the word of God. But unfortunately, if we don't continually bathe ourselves with the word of God in a continual habit as a Christian, the world starts to throw scales over our eyes and our perspective gets jilted. And before long, a spiritual blindness in our everyday life can move into the heart and life of the Christian and those scales can only be revealed if we are honest with ourselves about our condition. And we're honest with ourselves about the need for a cure. Not only own his condition and long for a cure, but thirdly, he obeyed the command. The simplest of things. That thing that we expect little children to do at some point. Obey. Often as adults, we do not. In John chapter 9, there in verse number 7.
And Jesus said unto him, and he said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. Period. The next two words, he went. His way therefore and washed and came saying. You say, well, duh. What else is he going to do? Well, he didn't go to the closest pool. He didn't go to his house. He didn't, well, man, I got to get this nasty stuff out of my eyes. I mean, he didn't see what Christ did, but he heard it. You ever heard somebody, you ever seen somebody spit and you couldn't hear it? He was under no disillusion, the kind of pace that was on his eyes. Now, he may not have known what was happening until it happened. My point is this. He simply obeyed. He went. You know, sometimes when it comes to the truth of the word of God, we complicate the simplest things. When really all it needs is obedience. Several reasons, real quickly, will be done why people disobey the word of God. Number The truth about the gospel. Number one, it is gained. Salvation is gained without any credit to the sinner. This blind man could take no credit for his healing. Salvation of the Bible is an insult to the pride of the human heart. The reality is the work has been completed. The way has been imparted and the sinner is simply to obey. I think oftentimes we delay in our obedience because obedience is an acknowledgement of superior worth. You know when a child finally gets to that point where they obey is because somewhere along the line, the parent imparted wisdom into that child to a point that that child realized that to obey is better than sacrifice. (laughs) And that translated to, I'm obeying this parent, and maybe not at two and three and four, but you watch it in a child's life and you can see it in their eyes when they look at a parent. At some point, there's a transition, and that obedience starts to take place because they see in that parent somebody that is worthy of their obedience. You know why people disobey God? Because in their mind, he's not worthy. You say, well, I've never thought that before. Your actions have. You know why we obey the law of gravity? Because we understand that without supplemental things like a plane or a parachute that if we jump off a cliff, you're dead. We understand that. Why? Because we submit to the superior worth of that law. And you know why people disobey the truth of the word of God and the gospel? It's because somewhere in there they have a higher worth of themselves than the word of God itself. This is a level of pride where we dwell, people. Another reason that salvation is disobeyed is because it is given from a person that has never been seen. Blind men have never seen Jesus up to this point. He never seen anybody, but he had not seen Jesus. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things what? Not seen. Seven verses later, talking about Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by 
faith. Faith. You know why people don't obey the simplicity of salvation? It's because it comes from a place that can't be seen. It takes a little word called faith. You have to abandon belief in what you can see and trust in what you cannot. And then thirdly, I think people disobey not only because it's gained without any credit to the sinner. It's given from a person that has never been seen, but it is gross and not the way we would have done it. But we haven't talked about this a lot, but I mean, this, this is kind of gross. How many of you guys would sign up to have this thrown on your eyeballs? Look, look I've, been, I've been marrying my wife for a long time, but there's just no way. I'm going to let her spit in the ground, make mud, put it anywhere near me. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Let alone a stranger. Okay, think for a second. I I, I understand. I don't want to get gross, but this is the word of God. The reality is this. How much spit comes out when you spit? Okay, we're, we're allowing for the fact that you're not chewing. Okay? That's an amazing amount that comes out when people chew. That's disgusting. All right, but, but how much comes out? Not much. This took some time. I mean, you're not talking about a mud ball like this. I mean, there had to be at least two of them about at least this big. And he had to stand there and spit and spit and spit. And it, 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 put yourself in the blind man's eye, it, 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 viewpoint. All he's hearing is somebody spit a lot. And I can imagine about a minute in, I mean, people are getting quiet because they're like, something weird is happening right now. I don't know what's going on here, but this is weird. And all of a sudden, hey, it's gross. Anybody ever read the sacrifices of the Old Testament and said, oh, I'd love to be a part of that? No way. It's disgusting. If you've ever dressed an animal... Times it a hundred. There's blood everywhere. There's body parts over here. There's, there's blood over here on this ground. There's blood on that altar. There's the smell of burning flesh. It's disgusting. Let's just be honest. It's gross. And then if you could, reverently, if you could, somehow in our mind's eye, get a viewpoint of the cross. Tell me that's not gross. It's gross on a level that's hard for us to conceive the amount of blood that had to have been present. The mangled flesh. It's gross. And the fact that you tell somebody if without the blood you can't be saved, you know what the the natural man does? They repulse from that. Why? Because that's not the way you would have done it. You would have done it, especially today, you would have done it in a sterile environment. With hand sanitizer wipes and plenty of alcohol stuff and at least three masks. And guess what? You would have got to heaven and there would have been no, you're not coming this way. The reality is this, God made the rules, he put it into place how it's supposed to happen, and it doesn't matter if I think it's gross, it doesn't matter if you think it's gross, it's his plan and it's his way. And here's the kicker. You know why it's gross? I think this. I think the reason that salvation and redemption, when we look at it, 
is such a repulsive thing is maybe, just maybe, God wants us to look at the price that had to be paid for our sin is a slight mirror of how horrible our sins look in the eyes of God. It's messy. It's sticky. It's dirty. It stinks. But see, we don't look at our sins the way they are. All we do is look at redemption's plan and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe he did it that way. And God's looking at you going, I can't believe you did that. You put that nail through my son's hand. It wasn't the way we would have done it. And maybe you wouldn't have healed that blind man that way, but God chose to do it that way. And it didn't matter to that blind man if it was gross. And none of it matters. Why? Because he was desperate for a healing. Look at the last couple of verses of John chapter 9. One last passage and we'll be done. Hebrews 9.22, without, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. John chapter 9, verses 39 through 41, the Bible tells us this. And Jesus said, For judgment I am come into this world, that they which see not might see. Now, if, at, up to this point, it feels like he is talking about the blind that he just made to see. But this is not physical at all in its nature, and you'll see this is 100% spiritual in its context. That, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made what? Blind. You know why I know for a fact this isn't physical? Because God wasn't going around making people blind. And the fact that he talks about judgment. It's a pretty good indicator we're not talking about physically here. He's so, verse 40, this is where we're resting. And some of the Pharisees, which were with him, heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. The reality is, in the heart of the average person, Lifted up with pride, they stand there saying, we see, and they're the blindest person in the room. And the Bible is saying this, if you can come to Jesus Christ as a blind person in a position of begging, knowing you have no chance, then guess what? Your sins can be forgiven. But if I'm standing there saying, I see, because I know, and this is the way it has to be, God is saying, you still have your sins. So in reality, those that claim to see are in worse condition than those that know that they're blind. So I ask you again this morning before we're done, how clearly do you see? Is it just something that you say that you do? Or is it actually something you know that you do because Jesus Christ has opened your eyes? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, in whom the God of this world hath what? Blinded the minds of them that believe not. Lest the light, the knowledge of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, should shine unto them. The reality is, most people are blinded that say they can see because they're still blinded by the God of this world. And Christian, how open are our eyes through the knowledge of the word of God? 
Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for simple principles in the Word of God. Thank you, God, that although you may not still be in the business of touching people in their eyes and making them see, you are certainly in the business of touching people in their souls and giving them the vision, the only vision that they can have in order to see clearly the Word of God. Help us this morning, God, help us to be honest with ourselves. And Lord, maybe for some it would be rejoicing in the fact that you did something miraculous in our lives. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking this morning.